You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us after a glorious Sunday. And I mean that in every way. It was a great Sunday. I think it would be erroneous to take claim for the Chiefs win. However, I do think it should be noted that at the end of the service, as I pray the benediction, I say, amen, go Chiefs. I just kind of slipped it in there. It was it was sort of the prayer of our heart, and uh, Chiefs won. Enjoyed watching the game with friends yesterday, or at least the, the back half of the game after we got home was fun. Yesterday was a great Sunday, and I am not the pastor that hypes every Sunday and says, that was the best thing ever, because it can't be the best thing ever. Uh, but some Sundays are, are kind of beautiful, and yesterday was one of those. And it wasn't so much the preaching, uh, it was the worship. We just gave the Lord some space and uh, gave people space to lift their voices and sing whatever was on their heart. And some of you, that makes nervous. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I'm not one of these guys that says, you know, Lord, we give you permission. I think he pretty much has authority to do whatever he wants. But I don't always think that we give him space. You know, you have authority over your kids, but sometimes they just don't quit talking. And uh, we dialed down. Let him talk. Let others in the room lift their voice to him. And it was a great, great morning. Preaching? Eh, I'll let you decide. Deuteronomy 28, coming up next. First of all, Deuteronomy 28 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, just open it, leave it there. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. We'll always come back to Deuteronomy 28, and you'll want to know where we are in that chapter more than anything. If you have children or if you've worked with children, you're going to understand the nature of Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy is the retelling of the laws. And if you're a parent, you understand there is often a periodic retelling of the laws, right? You sometimes got to go back and recover it. Sometimes you can even see it coming. And you tell your children, okay, we're going into a bathroom at a sketchy gas station. Do not touch anything. Then when you get there, you tell them again, do not touch anything. All right? And then when you go into the bathroom, you tell them, do not touch anything. On the way out, dads, you tell the kids, don't tell mom you touched anything. You know, you alter it a little bit, but you retell the law over and over and over again. Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. In the Greek Septuagint, the word means second law. It is the retelling of Moses' Moses' laws that he brought down from the Lord. And the theme of the book is the renewal of God's covenant and Moses' call to obedience. It revisits that idea of this is what I'm going to do for you, but you need to obey. All the way through Deuteronomy, we find passages, snippets, phrases like Deuteronomy 4.1 that says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. Listen to the laws and do them. So understanding that Moses is going over things one more time, God places passages throughout the book that lay out the long-term life benefits of serving the Lord. And he tells them a couple of times, this can go one of two ways. It can be a time of great blessing, or it can be a time of 
tragic curses, and which way it goes is largely up to us. He revisits that main idea over and over again that we'll talk about, for instance, in Deuteronomy 30, 19. He tells them, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that your offspring may live. When do we ever get a choice so simple as between life and death? Almost never. You're almost always choosing between bad and worse. You're driving on ice. You hit the brakes. You start to skid. Do I hit the car or do I hit the ditch? Bad or worse? I don't like either of these. Or it's good and better and you struggle with which of these is best. No, no, he's like, I'm going to make this so black and white for you. This is a gift between a good answer and a bad answer, and yet he gives us the dignity of choosing and then lays that teeter-totter on the fulcrum of obedience. Says, you pick one. And however you choose is the way this thing's going to tip. Deuteronomy 28, this is really where we're going to rest the most of the time. I I just want to acknowledge that the clock has been removed from the wall and tell you that it was not me, okay? And so I have one here. Trust me, we're going to be fine. Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, and again, we're going to just unfold this whole thing this morning. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings that shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. It says it twice. If you obey, these are the things that will overtake you. Now, we can't take this out of context, okay? Don't take this completely out of context. This was a contract between Jehovah and the Jewish people. This was their covenant. However, just because it was their covenant doesn't mean that we cannot understand things about God from it. We understand his character from the covenants that he made. We look at the promises he made and we can understand what kind of a God that he is. We see his character from his covenant. And we see a pattern in how he relates to humanity here. A pattern in how God responds to obedience. Patterns are really useful when you don't know what you're doing. Aren't they? If you have a pattern and a little bit of skill, you can sew something. The guy who assembled our play center for our children had a pattern to do Even with the pattern, I couldn't have done it. But with the pattern, he did it. I have an acquaintance who studied patterns and playing cards and literally made millions of dollars counting cards in casinos all across America before he kept getting kicked out. Patterns are helpful. A pattern will give you information for the next step that you might not know if you didn't understand the pattern. So if you understand a pattern, you're at a huge advantage. That's why most of you should be able to beat a five-year-old in Battleship. Okay, You see the pattern and you beat it. You can beat the kid before he gets there. With a pattern, you find success. There is a pattern in Scripture that sets you up, and this is a direct quote from this passage in Deuteronomy, sets you up to be overtaken by blessing. For blessing to chase you down. When the blessings of God overtake you, you find yourself receiving blessings that you didn't even think to ask for because you have been obedient to Him. 
It's not a uniquely Old Testament idea either. Jesus talked about this. He promoted the idea of obedience unto blessing. Jesus said, John 14, 15 and 16, if you love me and you keep my, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, there's going to be obedience there. And I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper who will be with you forever. In part, a visitation of the Holy Spirit is in relation to our obedience and our love for Jesus. The word obey there is used, the original word is shema. It means to hear intelligently and attentively and respond accordingly. To obey is to hear intelligently, okay, I hear you, and I will respond accordingly. There's a gap between those two things that happen. If you work with kids, if you lead anybody, if you're honest with yourself, you know there are times you hear attentively and you still do not respond accordingly. That's what it means to obey. Now, like I said, I've never really taught through this, and one of the reasons why is I have heard this preached as if blessings are just there like fruits on a tree for you to go to pick. I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, and it's just all up to me to just grab these blessings. I've even seen this passage and other passages turned into a mantra that is repeated every time they take an offering. Probably not bad, but it's hard not to connect the idea of I'm giving to get, okay? That's not what this is. The blessing is not tied to you just giving, although I believe giving is done in obedience. Scripture tells us and shows us that we can even be righteous and obey and encounter difficulty. Latter part of Matthew 5.45, we don't have it on the screen, but Jesus says he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just or the unjust. So you can be a righteous person and still encounter difficulty. If you don't believe that, study the story of Job, who encountered deep difficulty, 40 chapters of crazy including friends who come to him and give him advice who are right 10% of the time. It would be easier if they were all wrong, but you got to sift through what they're saying. Don't you wish you had friends that were all right or all wrong, so you just discount them? You know, I'm sorry, you're on the wrong list. You're out of here, but you're right all the time. No, these guys are both. So righteous people occasionally encounter difficulty. You can't always look at people's circumstances and separate the sheep from the goats based on how life is going for them. But you do know that over the course of a lifetime, when you are obedient, the blessings of God overtake you. They chase you down. And my hesitancy to teach through this passage is also rooted in some negative thinking, just to be quite honest, some negative thinking that I have about the fact that maybe God will bless other people, but I can't ask for those things. Some of you struggle with that same thing. Those questions of, am I worthy of blessing? If he's going to bless anybody, is it going to be me? Or does that always happen to somebody else? I am a child of the Midwest, okay? Midwesterners cope. And we cope with lowered expectations. Particularly if you come from an immigrant family or anybody that came from, from Northern Europe, uh, you came over understanding or your family came over understanding that life was hard. And if it was, meant, it was meant to be hard, and if it wasn't hard, you're not doing it right. I, some of you are laughing now because you have these stories in your own family. My grandparents, on my, my mom's parents, had kind of a semi-arranged marriage. It wasn't flat-out arranged, but like the options were limited, and there you are, kids. Okay? 
And they didn't know each other well, did they? And so they were married, and on their, their wedding night, he took her home to his little shack or little cabin, it might have been, and he went to put the horses in the barn. She went into the house and looked around, had not seen the house up until this point, immediately started cleaning. Because that's what you did. Life was hard if you're doing it right. One of my favorite uh, pieces of literature, and some of you heard me, have heard me talk about this at length, comes from a... a novel in the 1930s. It's a satirical novel about a little town in Norway called Jante. And this little town valued community, valued everyone being together, valued uh, what it, the best of what it meant to be a small town and a little community. But with that came the worst of what it meant to be a small town and a small community. The values of communal life and, and holding them, the way to hold them together was what they called Jante law. You ever heard of this? Some of you have heard me talk about this. Jante Law. Jante Law makes no sense if you didn't grow up in the, in the upper Midwest. And if you grew up in the upper Midwest, you go, oh yeah, that's how you do life. These, there were 10 rules to Jante Law that stopped you from being an individual or thinking much of yourself. These were the, I'm not going to read them all, but these are some of the 10 rules of Jante Law. Rule number one was you are not to think you are anything special. Rule number three is you are not to think you are smarter than the rest of us. Uh, Garrison Keillor reinterprets them to modern day. He says, honorable mention is good enough for you. Rules like, you are not to think you are good at anything. You are not to laugh at us. You are not to think you can teach us anything. Some of you are going, this sounds absurd. Others of you are like, sounds like my family. I was raised that way. And the Jante law stripped away any sense that you could be important to anybody. And it was enforced with the 11th rule of Jante Law, which was the penal code. The penal code of Jante Law was this. If you broke any of the first 10 laws, you were told, perhaps you don't think that we know a few things about you. Meaning, don't you dare think that you could possibly be anything special. And for some of you, that has bled over into your walk with the Lord. And to think that maybe He could bless you seems so foreign or so strange you think, I was never really dear to my family. I was really never dear to anybody else. But the Lord looks at you and says, forget Jante Law. You are dear and you are unique and you are special to me. And you're just logical enough to go, how can we all be special? This sounds like a participation trophy. Let a sovereign God figure it out, okay? Let God figure out why he sees you as special. But he says that he does. If you look at the words that the Lord has spoken over you through Scripture, words like, you are my workmanship, you are called a child of God. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're a new creation. These are all things that he has said over you. I have had people speak things over my life. Some of them were of God. Some of them were of who knows what. Some of them I think were from the pit of hell. But as long as I rely on the words that other people have spoken over me, I will live or die by those words, and I will assume I am not worthy of any of the things we're going to read about in Deuteronomy that the Lord's character says he wants to give us. I want to lean on the words the Lord has spoken over me and ditch the words the people have spoken over me. Because even the ones that were encouraging are fleeting. Some people have unlocked a door to your heart because they said three good words, then they came in with the knife. And because you leaned on those good words, when the knife came, there was an opening. I'm telling you, the blessings and even the oddball comments that come from other people cannot sustain you in the days to come.
You've got to understand what he says about you. I have never regretted rejecting other people's words over my life and embracing God's words over my life. Never regretted it. It's never left me wanting. And because he has this plan or this pattern for blessing us, the original passage about the blessings and the cursings is alive and full of promise for you. This is not a message for the person that you meant to bring to church but did not come. This is for you. And he balances those blessings and cursings on that fulcrum of obedience. And as we move in obedience, we tip the teeter-totter one way or the other. Obedience, if we obey, blessings will hunt us down. I want to read it again. Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. And then we're going to get into what they are. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. We are coming into a season on the earth where radical obedience will be required at a level which we have not known. We have skated by on 70% obedience. And the world, the intensity of the world has not been so great that that has dissuaded us. And it's worked for a while. We are coming into a season, I'm not talking decades, I'm talking sooner than that, where it will take radical obedience for us to walk with him. And in radical obedience, we will find radical, radical blessing. Remember, I, I said 18 months ago, normal had outlived its usefulness. The, what has gotten us here has outlived its shelf life. How many of you have some things in your pantry that, Neh. oh, look, this can has a bulge. That must be a blessing. There's more than eight ounces in there. No, that's botulism. And some of you are so stocked up on normal that you can't bear the thought of parting with that and replacing it with radical obedience. Don't open those cans of normal. That stuff will poison you in the days to come. We need a radical walk with obedience to receive the radical blessing he wants to give us. In the days to come, it's coming soon, you will need radical obedience to understand how to lead your family. Oh, man. <laughs> We're in the deep end, okay? We raised our, our older boys in one world. Whole world's tipped 48 degrees. From the time our 28-year-old to the time that our 13-year-old, it's a different world. Which means that I've got to be a different dad in radical obedience. Also probably need to go to the 28-year-old and say, sorry, I missed a few things. But I can't do that with my girls and my little boys. We need radical obedience to lead our families, to respond to situations that we had never responded to three years ago. Three years ago, things that we, people are going, I think this is going to happen. We say, we think you're out of your mind. Now we're like, what do you think is going to happen next? Because they were right. Even how to conduct ourselves as a body, as a church family, it's going to take radical obedience because what we've known as church that was fulfilling in a different day will not work in what is to come. And our society is split between those who are in abject panic and others that are angry at any kind of change and want to go back to normal. Let me tell you, it's not time to panic, but pining for normal is not helping you either. 
because normal is not going to work. Even so, in obedience, we will be pursued and overtaken by blessing. Have you ever felt like you're being chased? That's because you're being chased. You're being chased by blessing, but that's not all. That word overtake is used again in that same chapter when it talks about disobedience. Later in verse 49, it says, Curses will come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed if you're disobedient. So you're being chased. It's just kind of up to us who catches us. Kelsey and I have this dear friend named Shelly Paulson. Shelly is probably the premier equine photographer in the world. If we were to go to any um, magazine stand here in town, you could find Shelly's work in horse magazines. Funny thing is, the best pictures of me that have ever been taken, Shelly took. So (laughs) make make what what you will, okay? I'm wearing a bridle. No, no, it's just... She didn't always take pictures of horses, but now she's like, horses are easier in dealing with people like Randy. And so she just takes pictures of horses. Shelly's photos are in magazines everywhere. And I saw the other day, Shelly photographed a fox hunting group's annual blessing of the foxhounds. I have so many questions about this. Like, I really do, like... Are, are, some of the, are some of the hounds believers? Are others not believers? Did that hound get a blessing? I, how does this work? I, I don't understand. But obedience or lack of obedience to the voice of God determines what is chasing us down, and it is chasing us down like a pack of hounds. Those hounds will catch the fox. It's 50 riders and 100 dogs after one fox. Fox has zero chance. The sport is in what? Catching him. But they're going to catch him what it means to be overtaken. There is a commanded blessing of the Lord that rests on those who are obedient to him, and it is chasing you down like a fox hound. But if you're disobedient, curses are chasing you down with the same fervency. You're going to get caught, and for the first time in your life, you get to decide what catches you. This is the pattern that the Lord ordains in his wisdom that you could have blessings or you can have cursings, and it's measured in your response to him your obedience to him. And you're wishing that it would be some big public display, but it is probably a little minute display of saying yes to him of what he whispers in your heart that nobody would know the difference if you answered it another way. That's where obedience is proven. Now, does that mean that everyone who says yes and obeys the Lord gets a fancy car and a house in the Hollywood Hills? I hope not. Because if so, I'm... I've missed some cars and some houses. No, that's not necessarily a blessing. That's just success. We've got to learn to differentiate between success in the eyes of the world and being blessed. Success has tanked a lot of people. Every one of us could name five people who in their success, their life blew up. You don't believe me? When you go home, Google life stories of people who won the lottery. There is a much higher rate of bankruptcy among lottery winners than there is among the poor. Success can't be the measuring stick for blessing. I think that's why sometimes I've disconnected with this passage at times. Because I felt like as I lean into this, and sometimes if I haven't succeeded, that maybe I've failed God. You have never failed in the eyes of God if you have been obedient 
That's what he measures success by, just simple obedience. That's what opens the door for blessing in your life. And in this passage, he lays out where and how he intends to bless us in response to our obedience to him. Some of you are still getting your head around the idea that God wants to bless you. You've got to move on from the jante law that you were, were raised in and just trust me, he wants to bless you. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy 28 and understand how. First thing he speaks over us, Deuteronomy 28, verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Well, isn't that beautiful? It's like Jesus, the disciples, country mouse and city mouse. What is he talking about here? Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Sounds like something is he stitched on a pillow at Cracker Barrel. Like, I smell waffles when I read this. There's something profound about the Lord's ability to bless you in the location and situation that he finds you. I have lived in the country. I think I've told you, growing up, a little kid, our church was about eight miles off pavement after they had moved it to the good location. Before that, it was in a place they said was called Skunk Hollow. Now, I was, it was before I grew I was in there. I don't remember that. But Skunk Hollow was down in a hole, and if you drove down there for Sunday morning church and it rained, they would come out and they'd say, we can't get out of the hollow. Let's just do Sunday afternoon or evening church. We'll do the service. Hopefully it'll dry up. But even the good location was eight miles off pavement. That's, that's kind of, those are my people, okay? I've also lived in the city. Lived in Kansas City. Lived in Cincinnati. People who live in the country... Think of people who live in the city in a way that's sometimes not accurate. When we lived in the, in the middle of nowhere, I thought everyone in the city commuted two hours to work and lived in mortal fear of crime. Because I had seen movies about New York City. And I just thought that's what city life was. Likewise, people in the city have no grid for life in the country. And there's positives and there's negatives to both of them. But whatever they are, those in the country or small town think boy, if I make it big, I'm going to move to the city. I'm going to live the life. Now, ironically, people who live in the city measure those who have succeeded as those who have been able to get a place in the country. And God says, blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. What's he really saying there? He is saying you can find increase at any station or place in life and it doesn't mean that his blessing is going to move you in station. It means he is going to increase your influence and your blessing where you are. Some of you believe for blessings of God, but when you envision them, you think it's in a different place with different people in a completely different situation except for yourself, like you are the only constant. That's not necessarily a blessing. That's like the witness protection program. Okay? God does not always bless you by picking you up and dropping you somewhere else. That may be how he blesses the people that you know. There is potential under the hand of God for you to bloom where you are planted and display his glory in a way that you may have never noticed before. Are you asking for God to bless you? Then you need to get a vision for where he has planted you. Because you can be blessed in the city. You can be blessed in the field. 
Don't dream about some other place and think, when, everything, when I'm in a completely different place, I'll experience the blessings of God. No, he wants to do it right where you are. And unless you're living in the fullness of the kingdom at your current address and your current job with your current circle of friends, for what purpose is this move that you pine? I think you just want out. Being blessed is not trading places with people. Being blessed is being obedient. It's letting the Lord work in the place where you are. Blessed will you be in the city. Blessed will you be in the field. Blessed will you be in the factory floor. Blessed will you be in the boardroom. Blessed will you be at the place he puts you. He has a destiny and a purpose for where you are. And your yes, Jesus, and your obedience unlocks that purpose and allows you to bloom. Blessed will you be in the city. Blessed will you be in the field. Next thing he says in verse 4, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Well, we sorted out the blessings in the city and the country, but what's the whole fruit thing? What does this mean? All of this speaks to the future. Children, vineyards, herds, cattle, all of them are related to long-term blessing. How is wealth built in the natural? Happens over time. Hard work, wise investments, risk, compound interest. Wealth takes place. Very, there are very few overnight millionaires. People who attribute wealth happens over time. There is also a cumulative effect to the blessing of God. And over time, blessing increases. This verse is talking about the wealth or influence or blessing in your life that is built in the increase of our families and our productivity over time. Blessed will be the fruit of your life. Those who are obedient and obediently faithful over time will walk in a blessing to a greater and greater degree. And some of you will reap blessings after decades of faithfulness that are commensurate to decades of faithfulness. It is the setting up of blessing that rolls down from godly grandparents to parents to children. It is a level of blessing that is not a get blessed quick scheme. It is if I determine to say yes and say yes and say yes and say yes, the cumulative that is not four blessings, it's 40 blessings. It builds itself up. Because all things he's talking about here take time to accumulate. Uh, first weekend that uh, I was on my teaching break, I was in Colorado and uh, was up hiking and I hiked past a field of, of cows, about 100 Angus cows. Took a picture, texted it to all my kids. I said, I just bought 100 cows, send cash. They didn't send any cash. But nobody buys cattle to be rich tomorrow. No, if you buy cattle today, you have more bills tomorrow and more cow poop than you can imagine. It's work. Investment in, in saying long-term yes, it, it takes means work tomorrow, but the payoff is huge. The fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the increase of the herds and of the flocks is about blessing over time. Some of what you are fighting to obey to right now, the fruit of saying yes to what you are being asked to right now will have a greater payoff in the lives of others down the road than you can imagine. Some of you are first-generation believers. You were not raised in the faith, or you were raised in a faith that was um, marginal. 
You have taken a great step of obedience to say yes to the Lord. You have no idea the blessing you are preparing for generations to come that you did not have. What if no generation to follow you had to start at ground zero with God like you did? That's what the roll down of blessing looks like. Let me make it real practical here. When there's a squabble in your family, people still have squabbles? Fight. When there's a fight in your family, the drive to settle it in obedience to the Father is just not about ending the fight. It is about blessing coming generations. That's what you're fighting for. In the 1700s, families fled persecution from Switzerland. Religious persecution boarded a boat, they came across the US, uh, to the U.S., or what would be the U.S. Fifty families on the ship. There were 50 children on the ship, and disease swept through the ship. Forty-nine of them died. One little boy survived. When they landed in the, uh, North America, the 49 mothers who had lost children gathered around that mother whose son survived laid hands on him and prayed for him and said, surely there is a destiny for your little boy. Little boy's name was Jacob. Jacob survived, founded the Brethren in Christ denomination. Jacob's son was a minister. The son after that was a minister. And Jacob, that one little boy that said yes to Jesus and was faithful, was Jacob Engel. Our friend Lou Engel is the eighth generation minister in the line of that family. When Lou talks about this, he says, oh, this is not about me. This is about eight generations of prayer that has rolled down that I have inherited. It's eight generations of obedience. I am who I am, not just because of who I am, but because eight generations before me have said yes to the Lord, and it's all I can do. I want to let that roll down to my kids. Put aside your false humility for a minute that says maybe the Lord can't bless me and begin to dream how the Lord can give you increase that will bless for generations. Man, I, I understand we grew up without much. It's hard for me to understand that he would have much for me. But the Bible says he does. The way of the kingdom is increase. It's the way of the universe. The whole universe is increasing. I read recently an article by Paul... Sutter, he's an astrophysicist at New York University at Stony Brook. And he talks about the idea that universe is constantly expanding, but the crazy thing is it's expanding at the edges faster than it's expanding in the middle. It's growing exponentially. That's what happens when God says, let there be light and never says stop. The edges of all that is known is expanding. It's the way of the universe. It's also the way of the kingdom is continual expansion. It's perpetual, exponential, eternal increase. When God the Father sent his son to the earth, he spoke through a prophet and said, talk to them about what it's going to be like when my son is here. That prophet was Isaiah, and his prophecies hundreds of years before the birth of Christ were so accurate that critics now say, couldn't have been written so far before Christ. That's the bummer about being a prophet. If you miss it, they say you weren't a prophet. And if you nail it, they say it couldn't have been a prophet. 
But he was, and he said in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase, of the exponential growth, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He said, oh, when he comes, it will expand. So the way of the universe, continual expansion. The way of the kingdom, continual expansion. That statement is the equivalent of a declaration from heaven in the form of a ray. You remember anything from geometry? Most of us think in line segments, A to B, beginning to end. Do I get 70 years? Do I get 90 years? I don't know. He goes, no, the kingdom is a ray. There's a beginning, and it just goes. Remember when you were a little kid studying geometry the first time you tried to get your head around that? You'd work on your homework. You'd think that ray that I was thinking about this morning, it's still going. Lay in bed at night, ray is still going. Maybe it was just me. I was a bit of a weird kid. But you think about these things, me and Rachel, you think about these things just going on and on. That's the nature of the, of the universe. It's the nature of the kingdom. But what God is doing in the universe and in his kingdom is always increase. What he's doing in your heart is increase. The way of blessing in your life in response to the obedience of his word is increase. The roll down of the increase of family and herds and fruit and authority, all of that comes from continual obedience. The blessing of God is on those in the country, on those in the city. It's on an exponential increase. Verse 5, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Somebody going, I didn't know I had a basket. I didn't know I needed a bowl. This is one of those times when we realize how removed we are from our food source, okay? Now, you ever think about where all the food is? I think about these things. You have a lot of kids that think about where the food is. Some of it's in our pantry. A little bit of it's in the store. But as we understand when, you know, pandemic hit, there's not much in the store. I remember going to Trader Joe's about 18 months ago, and the only thing they had were these cauliflower things that apparently no one will eat, even in famine. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Everything was empty. It was like not one person. <laughs> They're like, rather die. <laughs> Where's the food? Most of this is true. Because of how supply lines work, most of the food in our country is on a truck somewhere. Most of the food. They make it, throw it on a truck, goes to the store. And you buy it, my kids eat it. That's how it works. The Jewish people, most of their food was not on a truck somewhere. Most of their food was right out behind the house. And they were in such an immediate connection with the food that sometimes they would harvest grain, gather it in their basket, stop at lunch, eat a sandwich made with bread from grain they had harvested the day before. Circle of life, very small, okay? It's like, it's just, they're very much in touch with how their increase and how their food came. Because of this, the tools of their trade were a basket that gathered their provision and a kneading bowl that they would, they would grind the wheat and they would make dough, and that's how it all worked. Their basket and their kneading bowl was their Harvard business plan. And in reflection to your obedience, there is a blessing on the way that you provide for your family that exceeds your ability to provide for your family. He says, no, I'm going to bless. You stand in obedience, and you give me your sacred yes and your sacred try, and I will bless the, the work of your hand. And I will provide for them in a supernatural way. In reflection to your obedience, there's a blessing on the way you provide that just goes beyond what you could possibly do. 
Conversely, there is in disobedience to his voice something else chasing you down. Deuteronomy 28, you drop down to verses 15 and 17, it says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, oh yeah, there's this other side of this whole chapter, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, cursed shall be your basket and cursed shall be your kneading bowl. Now, it rains on the just and the unjust, but when you are in a season of just not being able to work, one thing or another falls on you, you've got to ask, is there an area of my life where I have heard the Lord and I have not obeyed? Because there are seasons of life where you are struggling, not always, but where you're struggling and your struggle is related to disobedience. And he says, if you obey me, blessed will be your basket and blessed will be your bowl. Haggai had a word for the Lord where he talked about them struggling to increase. He says in verses, or chapter 1, 6, and 7, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Sometimes in seasons of disobedience, you're making money hand over fist, you're stuffing it in your pockets, and then you go to the grocery store and say, like, there's just... You can't find a way forward. Every turn, it's just there's never enough. And you go, how much? How did I make that much? How did I spend them? It's sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's related to disobedience. And your, your basket and your kneading bowl are under a curse that you have brought on yourself. Wow, is it quiet in here? Some of you are going, what have I done? But again, the whole thing hinges on obedience. We control which way this thing tips. We're not choosing between bad and worse. We're choosing between good and terrible. The last blessing we're going to talk about. There's more to this chapter, but I really want to get this one in. Number six, or verse 6. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Well, all righty then. That's clear. Huh? Blessed will you be when you come in, blessed will you be when you go out. Sounds like the mom of a second grade boy watching them going in and out of the back door. You know those first few weeks of summer break? It's all you ever say. Shut the door. Shut the door. Hey, shut, shut the door. Why are you yelling? What's all this coming in going out about? What does it mean? Well, there's a, there's a blessing to coming in and going out. When the Bible uses an unusual phrase like that or something we don't have a context for, the best thing you can do to interpret it is to look for other places in Scripture where it's used. It's called letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Okay, And if other places where you read it and go, oh, it makes sense there, okay, it's probably what it meant there. This phrase is used over and over in reference to the leadership of people in relation to being in God's presence. Repeatedly. Numbers 27, 16 and 17. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep who has no shepherd. He's specifically looking for someone here who can go into the presence of God and go back out, go in, go back out as a representative of the people and lead them in how to do that. We have entirely surrendered the idea of Christian leadership to be about a CEO or a world-class communicator or a brilliant scholar or an internet influencer, the biggest role of the leader of a flock is to teach them to encounter the Lord and engage the world. 
My highest calling in your life is to teach you to go in and meet with the Lord and then to go out and meet the challenges that you have. And then go back in to meet with the Lord and then go back out to meet the challenges you have. You say, Randy, you tied this going in and coming out to leadership on, on one verse? No, there's a ton of them. Deuteronomy 31, when Moses retires, he said, I'm 120 years old. I can't go in and I can't come out anymore. He's like, I just, I wasn't, I'm not, I can't lead anymore like I did. When Solomon is looking to be given anything he wants, he asks for wisdom to lead. And the verse he uses in 1 Kings 3, 7, he says, I don't know how to go out or to come in. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. I've got to understand what it means to encounter the Lord and then to go face my, my challenges. And then to go back and encounter the Lord and go face my challenges. The primary need to lead people in a church, a small group, a family, lead a spouse, is an understanding of how to go in before the Lord and then to go back, go back out and face what you face. Now, the more analytical among you are going, well, well the Lord is everywhere. That's true, but we missed him a lot. He's everywhere, but we've got to learn how to encounter his presence, okay? We've got to learn how to engage with him. It's not that he's missing, it's that we are. You can't just go about your day without an understanding of his presence, how to go into it, how to come out, multiple times a day. The other day, I'm, I'm driving to take the kids to school. I drive home. I've got 30 minutes. I'm like, all right, Lord, it's me and you in this car, and it's never just me and you in this car. I, I want to speak to you. I want to hear from you. Every moment you can eke out alone with him to learn how to go in and come out of his presence, it's a measure of obedience that will provide for blessing in both activities of going in and coming out. It is a lifelong commitment to obedience that left Caleb 85 years old, 85 years old, on the edge of the promised land. He's been there before. He was there 40 years earlier. Nobody believed him. He said, we can go in and take this land. But the other spies didn't agree. And as a result, they had to wander around for another 40 years. But when he gets back to the land of blessing, he's now 85. In Joshua 14, 11, he says, Yet I am as strong this, on this day as the day Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so my strength is for war, both for going out and for coming in. He said... I'm ready to fight this battle. Why? Because for the past 40 years wandering around in the desert, I have disciplined myself to know what it means to encounter the Lord and to fight the battles that come my way. Friends, I am really hungry for all of the blessings the Lord has for us. And he is offering us an opportunity to have it in the fullness and the whole thing hinges on our obedience. We get to pick it. There will be things that happen in life that we're completely apart from our own behavior because we live in a fallen world. But over the long trajectory of life, blessings overtake those who walk in obedience. Individuals, families, fledgling little churches. I want to take radical steps of obedience right now. It will never get easier for us as a body. If the Lord speaks to us to do something that is a little unconventional, it will never get easier than right now. Our assets can fit in my car. Okay, it's, it's easy. If he speaks to us, you're like, what are you hinting at? I don't know. I'm hinting at saying yes, Jesus, 
to whatever he calls us to. Let's bow your heads for a moment. Father, we're just going to leave it here. We sit before you and we ponder blessings and cursings and we understand a little better than we did maybe an hour ago what you are doing in our life. And as individuals and as a family, we say yes to radical obedience. Lord, let it be that no generation to follow us would have to start at ground zero. Let it be that our children and those that we influence would be at great advantage because we said yes to what you are calling us to do. Father, for those even right now that are beginning to think of things that they've, they've said no to or they have avoided answering as if you didn't notice that you've asked the question multiple times, we ask for courage to say yes and to walk in your ways and to be overtaken by the blessings of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And go Chiefs. God bless you. Have a great weekend.